Today from the Global Lane, the COVID-19 pandemic. It started in Wuhan, and now nearly a million people are infected worldwide. Should China be held accountable? As coronavirus devastates Iran, the regime moves forward, producing enough enriched uranium to build a nuclear bomb. Graduation ceremonies canceled. No visits for potential incoming freshmen. How colleges and universities are coping with the COVID-19 pandemic. Hydroxychloroquine, miracle drug? The FDA gets it right. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. On the home front, an alarming conclusion from the Department of Justice. According to Yahoo News, the FBI has revealed that China possesses a biological security risk to the United States. That conclusion comes after a series of U.S. Customs and Border Protection seizures of undisclosed vials of materials carried into the United States by Chinese biologists. One incident cited occurred in November 2018 at Detroit Metro Airport. Customs agents uncovered vials containing viable MRES, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, and SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome materials. The U.S. Justice Department report came out last year, just two months prior to the COVID-19 outbreak in Wuhan, China. So what should the United States do? How should the Trump administration respond to alleged Chinese deceptions about COVID-19 and this ongoing biological security threat? Retired Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, joins us with some insights. General Spaulding, Good to have you on again, sir. So first, COVID-19. We know it originated in Wuhan, China. Many people believe the Chinese government hid the truth about it. Now the world has suffered economic shutdowns, around 40,000 deaths worldwide. Should China be held accountable? And if so, how? Well, there's no doubt. And I think uh, one of the ways that we, we can uh, hold them to account is really requiring them to conduct a full investigation where our uh, CDC investigators are actually allowed into the lab, allowed uh, there in Wuhan, the P4 lab, allowed to uh, interview their researchers, allowed to go to the wet market that this, uh, that this uh, virus was, according to them, supposed to have come from. But more importantly, we can, we can actually respond by beginning to decouple from the Chinese Communist Party. It's clear it's not just a danger to our economy as we've lost so many thousands of factories, but it's also a danger to our health and welfare of our citizens. There is no way that we'd have a global pandemic today if the Chinese Communist Party wasn't a totalitarian regime bent on protecting its own image at all costs. And of course, as you say, it isn't only the deaths from COVID-19, it's the economic livelihood of nations. And you have a doctorate in economics, so tell us, Who's been hurt more economically from this pandemic, China, the U.S., other countries? Well, I think uh, across the world, all countries will be hurt from the pandemic eventually. And I think the Chinese Communist Party's really experienced it first. So they're the first to get their factories back up and, and operating. In fact, they're using this as justification for a global push to increase their control over the global supply chain. So while everybody else is dealing with the virus, they're busy at work trying to convince everybody that we need to move more of our manufacturing over, over there. They also went to uh, the Indians recently and said, hey, let us put up a 5G network so we have access to your population because we use it to track you know, the, the spread of fevers within China. So it's a good idea if, if we install this for you. This is what's going on right now. So 
if you if you think about it, this was written about in the in the book Unrestricted Warfare by two PLA two PLA colonels. How you take advantage of a crisis by actually advancing your economic and overall power by you know taking advantage of the countries that are facing the crisis. This is what's going on now. And there's a lot of speculation on social media, and I warn people to be careful about what they take for truth on those platforms. But a lot of people wonder about the origins of this virus. And Senator Tom Cotton speculates it may have leaked from a level four super lab in Wuhan. We've seen two explanations from China, one that it came from diseased bats in a wet market in Wuhan, another that the U.S. military was responsible for unleashing it on China as a bioweapon. Now, you served as senior defense official, defense attache in Beijing, chief China strategist for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of the Pentagon. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, I have a personal opinion on the origin of the virus, but I don't have any facts. And here's the, here's the challenge that we face. Nobody's going to have facts. Everybody that speculates that the virus came from the wet market is doing that based on conjecture. They don't actually have the evidence. Anybody that speculates it's coming from a lab, they're also doing that based on conjecture because they don't have the evidence. My guess is we'll never have the evidence because that's the nature of a totalitarian regime. You know, there's a lot of things that we learned about the Soviet Union after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the crumbling of the former Soviet states. But we're not going to find out what actually happened with this virus until the Chinese Communist Party is no more. And who knows when that'll happen. So in the meantime, we need to protect ourselves because we can't trust. We know for a fact that they're doing biowarfare um, research. That is probably dangerous when we have such connectivity, particularly with airlines coming back and forth every single day with Chinese passengers. And we found out during the pandemic, if only three weeks earlier we had been warned, we'd have 95% less infections right now. This is, a, this is a challenge of being connected to them. Okay, and now the other challenge, that FBI DOJ report, it seems like Chinese biologists are covertly bringing in all kinds of biological agents into the U.S., most of these have legitimate research purposes. Now, you served as Senior Director of Strategic Planning at the National Security Council. So what is your assessment? How great is the security risk to the people of the United States? Well, you know, they're, they're shipping all kinds of illicit things in the United States. I mean, we already know that they uh, ship in, you know, things that poison our pets or exploding toys. We also know they ship in fentanyl. Now we're finding out they're, they're moving biological um, viruses across the border, not just from China to here, but from here to China. So these are all challenges of dealing with this regime that really has, it doesn't believe in rules. In fact, Unrestricted Warfare, the book I was talking about, when you translate it another way, it's called War Without Rules. It's really about how the Chinese Communist Party does not feel it has to obey any of the rules of the international order or even of the United States because it feels it's it's entitled to, to, to create its own set of rules based on the order it wants. That's what's going on. Okay, some excellent insights from someone who knows, retired Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, your senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. Thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you for having me. In the Middle East, as Iran musters national resources to combat the COVID-19 virus, it is also building up its stockpile of enriched uranium. As a matter of fact, the Islamic Republic has now enriched enough to pass the nuclear bomb-creating threshold. 
That word this week from the International Atomic Energy Agency. The IAEA says Iran's uranium stockpile now stands at 1,510 kg. That's about 1,200 kg more than allowed under terms of its international agreement. Well, a stockpile of 1,000 kg is enough to be refined to create a nuclear bomb. Here to weigh in is retired Special Operations Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Sangari. Mr. Sangari is CEO of the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. Sargis, good to see you again. So how concerned should we be right now about Iran possessing a 1,500 kg stockpile of enriched uranium? Gary, it's good to be here. And we should be concerned to the fact that uh, right now Iran has enough material to make a bomb. With that said, they also have a thousand centrifuges that they could go online within a week and create whatever else they need for their requirements to be able to sustain themselves when it comes to their nuclear ambitions. And of course, we already know how they've threatened Israel and other countries in the region. So what should we do about it? President Trump said the United States will never allow Iran to have a nuclear bomb. What should be done? Well, you have to continue with sanctions. You cannot uh, let your foot off their neck. Unfortunately for us, with what is happening with the uh, coronavirus, the COVID-19, right now you have the Shanghai Cooperation Organization led by China and Russia that uh, Iran is part of, a member nation with, uh, is already operating in the underbelly of NATO with uh, trying to win friends within Italy and also within the EU. And EU would be very critical to us as far as the sanctions are concerned. If you cannot rely on our European partners to ensure that those sanctions are kept on Iran, it would be very difficult for us to be able to check them. Well, you'd mentioned the COVID-19 virus. Now, the Islamic Republic, like many other nations, is battling COVID-19, the pandemic. They have the largest number of cases in the Middle East, at least 45,000. And a dissident group, the National Council of Resistance of Iran, claims 15,000 deaths there, including 17 senior regime officials. So why so many in Iran? What's going on? Well, Iran had a, a wide relationship with the uh, Chinese government. Uh, you had 500 individuals that were uh, studying uh, uh, in uh, Ulm itself uh, when the virus broke out. So uh, this is a reality of uh, them having a very close relationship with China. Uh, and this virus, this pandemic, originated in China and Wuhan and has uh, infected individuals in Iran. But uh, the Iranian government doesn't really care there about their people. They only care about the uh, ensuring that the regime is uh, maintained. Well, they care about power. And so then what impact might the virus and the mishandling of it in Iran have on the regime's ability to maintain power once the pandemic passes? The only thing it has done, it has uh, created infighting. But this infighting was already uh, taking place within Iran itself. Uh, to include where uh, Zarif uh, last year uh, submitted his... Uh, uh, resignation because he wasn't happy with what Suleiman was doing within the region. Uh, the death of Suleiman gave an opportunity for us to reset everything in negotiations. Uh, unfortunately, right now, the focus is to be able to alleviate some of these sanctions, uh, which uh, really we have never ever put sanctions on humanitarian efforts against the uh, Iran populace. But what happens is every time Iran receives humanitarian support and effort, they turn around and actually use the dollars that are designated for those requirements for their own power base. Thank you, Sargis, for sharing your insights. We appreciate you.
Much appreciated. God bless. Colleges and universities around the country have shut their doors in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Many are completing their spring semesters online. So what challenges and disappointments lie ahead for millions of students? And how are colleges and universities working together during this crisis? Well, here to set us straight is Tim Gibson. Mr. Gibson is a retired Brigadier General for the U.S. Air Force and president of the King's College in New York City. Tim, thank you, sir, for joining us today. So New York City is definitely facing a crisis. It's kind of eerie seeing the streets of the city nearly vacant. Now, I know you shut your college down. So how are your students doing with this shift to online education? Well, Gary, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's, uh, it is a different city right now with uh, the social distancing policies that have been put into place. Uh, and so it's a very interesting time to be a New Yorker and to be in higher education. The, uh, I guess the one thing that I would I'd start with is we haven't shut down, as it were. We've, we've shifted to remote delivery of our courseware, but we're still very actively pursuing the, the high-quality education that the students have enrolled in the King's College to, to get. And I've been very pleased and, and frankly, proud. I'm admittedly biased towards our staff, faculty, and students. But our community overall has embraced this as an opportunity to continue moving forward together, but then also learn uh, on things that we may unexpectedly decide to keep uh, after the fact as well. So what's the biggest challenge that colleges and universities are facing as a, as a result of this viral pandemic? Sure. Well, first and foremost, we've all got to keep in mind that the safety of our, of our community is the top priority. Right, and so while we have to socially distance, uh, that doesn't mean we have to socially isolate. We can still uh, engage virtually, as as we're doing in this interview, and we can still conduct the the education in many cases that we've we've promised to deliver, and in fact, we're in the course of delivering when we made this decision. And I know it's difficult for many high school students to choose a college to attend when they can't even come and visit. Campus is shut down. Also, I've heard that college seniors are a bit disappointed. Many of them have worked so hard, and many colleges and universities have already canceled graduation, and they won't be receiving their diplomas at public ceremonies. So what's being done to address those concerns? Anything? Well, yes. Uh, so I'll, I'll take them in order. Uh, so first, with regard to the, the admissions process and the opportunity to visit campuses, you're right. Uh, there's no doubt that... The, uh, the different policies in different states are affecting our ability to conduct in-person tours of our campus, of our housing, and, and those types of things. That said, technology has given us the opportunity to do those things virtually. And so this is one of the unexpected blessings out of this situation. We're seeing a number of students who have previously said that they were not able to visit campus to take that virtual tour, if you will. And in fact, we're even having some scholarship uh, competitions that we're now hosting online as opposed to in person. And so we're adapting ways uh, of, of doing our, our processes uh, that, that suit the environment that we find ourselves in. Now, with regard to commencement, that's, a, that's gonna be a different uh, decision entirely, and it's gonna vary widely across the, across the nation. I know several colleges and universities have already made a decision. We've chosen deliberately to hold off on that decision. Uh, as a result of the policies that are in place in New York City. 
And so we don't, we're not forced into making a decision too soon. So there's still the possibility that we would be able to host a public ceremony and, uh, and bring the, the faculty, staff, and the families together to celebrate their, their graduates. And quickly now, I know King's College is working with other colleges and universities during this crisis, maybe Christian ones as well. What are you doing? Well, honestly, we're part of a, a number of different professional organizations, such as the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. And so through those connections, we're discussing with our peers, what decisions are they facing? What criteria are they weighing? And I've been very impressed in the last three years that I've been part of the uh, Christian higher education community at how collaborative this community is. Uh, we recognize this is kingdom work and that we're investing in that next generation that we want to raise up and influence our, our culture and our societies. And so it, we're very quick to share what we have in terms of best ideas and best practices, very quick to exchange policy thoughts, and very quick to point each other towards helpful information and opportunities. Okay, I'm sorry we're out okay. of time, but Tim Gibson, president of the King's College in New York City, hope to talk to you again sometime. Thank you for your insights. A real pleasure, Gary. Thank you. Early on in the COVID-19 crisis, President Trump insisted the anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine could be, quote, the biggest game changer in the history of medicine. Now, some members of the president's coronavirus task force said evidence of a coronavirus cure from taking that drug was purely anecdotal. But now the FDA has authorized emergency use at hospitals to treat adult and teen patients diagnosed with COVID-19. Is it a miracle cure? A Florida businessman told CBN News it worked for him. Rio Giordaneri says he was near death and was given hydroxychloroquine as a last resort. I, I don't have any scientific facts to back it up. I can only tell you I went to sleep in major pain with a fever for nine days that, that wouldn't shake. And when I woke up at 4.45 in the morning, I was feeling great. Giordaneri was discharged three days later. If hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine have worked for so many people, why so much resistance from the medical community and some state governors, other politicians? Well, joining us with more is Dr. Elizabeth Lee Leet. Dr. Vleet is past director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. She's founder of the Vive Life Center and Hormone Health Strategies of Tucson, Arizona and Dallas, Texas. Dr. Vleet, so why has there been so much resistance to allow COVID-19 patients to be treated with a drug that has worked for some people? Well, Gary, I, I think part of the issue is that Dr. Fauci and President Trump are coming from two different perspectives. Dr. Fauci is a researcher and is involved, has spent his career being involved in randomized clinical trials and testing and developing evidence about how we can be sure that something is effective across a broad scale. On the other hand, President Trump, as a businessman who's had to solve problems globally for the last 40 years, is, is understanding that we, what many of us on the ground treating patients, boots on the ground rather than in the academic centers, we understand that sometimes you have to go to war with the tools you have and the tools that we have that uh, working against this particular virus with hydroxychloroquine and the azithromycin combination, the, well, yes, you can say that's anecdotal, but when you start having hundreds of patients' lives saved from coming in from 10 different countries, you have to look at that as an effective option in a situation where we don't have 
a definitive cure. It's a brand new virus. There hasn't been any time to develop a cure or a vaccine. So we're using drugs that we know we've worked with in medicine safely for 70 years. What's interesting is they gave chloroquine to our Vietnam troops going overseas to Vietnam in the 60s to prevent malaria and making the troops sick. So we've known for many decades that it can be given prophylactically, which means to prevent a disease. If we give it early in a disease, in this case, COVID-19, we can reduce the number of hospitalizations. And if people are in the hospital and critically ill, you can give hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin together to help reduce the damage that occurs with COVID-19 due to the cytokine storm that causes such an exaggerated immune response. People are dying from the complications. When Governor Cuomo issued the emergency order for New York State, he was saying that hydroxychloroquine could only be used in hospitalized patients and those on a clinical trial. Well, not every hospital is going to have a clinical trial going, number one. Number two, if you wait until they're in the hospital, then all of the patients that Dr. Zelenko had just reported as successful treatments in New York would have been missed, and we end up creating more burden on the hospital. This is why I said so strongly, we need to keep the politicians out of the medical decision-making and let that medical decision be made by doctors on the ground using their clinical experience, using drugs they know how to use, and using their clinical judgment based on the patient at the time. Dr. Elizabeth Lee Vliet, thank you for your insights. Folks, if a close friend or family member was dying, wouldn't you do everything in your power to save their life? We cannot allow government bureaucracy and red tape to stand in the way of people receiving treatment and drugs that may cure them. In the case of COVID-19, the FDA did the right thing. Now, let's fast-track experimental treatments for people dying of cancer and other fatal diseases. Let the patients, not the politicians in Washington or state capitals, decide. It's an urgent matter of life and death. Well, that's it today from The Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.